Alright, see you in Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, We have never seen anything like this. So this is one of those stories, I think quite a lot of the gospel stories, if you're like me and you've kind of grown up with them or you've heard them a few times, they, they tend to lose their impact a bit. Um, it's like when you watch a movie that's you know got lots of plot twists. Um, I think, you know, Inception, the first time you watch that, everyone's talking about how amazing it is. And then a few months later, people are like, a dream within a dream, not a big deal, not that impressed. You know, like we lose our sort of amazement for some of these stories. Um, so let's just try and look at this story with fresh eyes, you know, as if we're part of the crowd and we're there on that day, and we're just going to walk through it slowly. Um, so, so Jesus came back to his hometown of Capernaum, and he'd been travelling and teaching all around the Galilee area, so he's gone through the wider countryside, and the people have heard that he's come home, and now he's teaching again. And it doesn't really specify, I'm, I'm assuming he's teaching in a synagogue as what they normally did, but it could have been in someone's home, could have been in his own home, it doesn't really specify that. Um, but regardless, the, the crowd is too big, it's overflowing, and there's no more room left, not even outside the door. So if you're outside the building, you're too far away to even hear what's going on. And these four guys show up carrying their paralyzed friend on a mat. Yeah, they heard Jesus is back in town. They've heard the rumours of what he's been up to going around teaching and healing all around the place. So they decided to bring their paralysed friend. And obviously they arrive and they can't get to Jesus because the crowd is too big. So imagine you're one of those people that's carrying your friend there. Um, you know, there's, there's no cars back then. You've probably carried them quite a long way. It, it's a lot of effort and you've, you know, a lot of motivation to grab, get them all the way there and you arrive only to find that you can't actually get close enough the whole thing was a waste of time you know I, I think I'd be feeling pretty deflated by that point you know you know I could have I could have got here on time if I didn't have to carry this guy you know, could have got a better seat it was all for nothing um, some, sometimes if I have to go pick something up in town and I can't find a close enough car park I'll give up you know I'm, I'm not very motivated to to keep trying with that sort of things not a fan of crowds either um, 
I'd probably would have been a very unhelpful friend to be on the corner or carrying that mat in that scenario. I'd probably just stand there like a deer in the headlights, like, you know, what do we do? You know, let's just put him down in the back and sit here and have a rest and <laughs> figure it out later. Um, you know, we can't even hear what Jesus is saying. Um, Jesus isn't even going to go that, know that this guy is here and that he needs healing. You know, what, what are other options do we have? And they decided to make an opening in the roof. They, they, it says that they were digging through it and they lowered the man down on his mat. So some people have quite different ideas of boundaries and what's acceptable. Um, that would not even have crossed my mind to be an option. Um, but I reckon most of you know my brother. If my brother was on another corner of that mat, I reckon he would have had no trouble saying, well, it's practically not that difficult. Um, you know, even today, you have a screw gun, you can take some screws off, lift a piece of roofing iron off, cut the paper, in you are, not a big deal. If it's a tile roof, pull a few tiles out, cut the paper, climb in, easy. That just would not cross my mind, and even if it did, it's it's not an okay thing to do. Um, yeah. But regardless, they, they did this. Um, and it wouldn't have been as tidy as a roof today. It says that they were digging through it. Um, I'm sure my brother would still do that anyway. Yeah. I think I'd probably be arguing, you know, it's not a matter of how difficult it is. You, you just can't break through someone's roof. <laughs> it's, you can't do that. Um, and, and I don't actually know what's worth. You know, it doesn't specify if they're meeting at some random guy's house or at a synagogue or at Jesus's house. You know, I, I don't know what scenario is the most acceptable to destroy a roof to break in. Um, yeah. I guess the stakes were a bit higher in this story, you know, that they were convinced that Jesus could actually heal their friend and, you know, it, it's the only hope they had. So so maybe that does make it okay to destroy a roof. It probably does, but I think I'd still be hesitant. Um, so they agreed on this plan and they start digging through the roof. Can you imagine, I'm, I'm, I'm going to picture it's a synagogue here, you know, where he's teaching. Can you imagine he, you're sitting in church and you hear footsteps up above you? Um, and, and you know, dirt starts trickling down while you're in this church service. And you, you're trying to listen to this guy talking, and you know that's that's quite a distraction. Um, or you know, if you're preaching a sermon, um, you know, sometimes a squawking kid in the background is distracting, or a kid text, uh, you know, a teenager chatting or texting on their phone. I think this would top that. Um, you know, dirt trickling down and seeing the sunlight above you, that would be a very distracting sermon, I reckon. So, so you lower this guy down and he lands in front of Jesus. And again, imagine you're up there on the roof with me and my brother looking down. And I can sort of picture this being like the longest, most awkward silence, you know, full of suspense. It's, it'd be a terrifying moment, you know, how is he going to react? How's everyone else going to react? You know, there's a big crowd there. You know, they're going to make me pay to fix the roof. You know, there's, there's a lot of things going on there. And I feel like this sort of scene would be better portrayed, you know, kind of like an awkward British comedy movie. Um, <laughs> like first century Judaism, it was it was very ceremonial, um, and I think our idea of church and culture isn't really a great match. You know, Western evangelical, we're we're very relaxed, um, so it would be closer to think of it more like a you know a super religious Catholic church. You know, I don't know if any of you guys have been to a Catholic church service. Um, perhaps not with all the physical extravagance that we see today, but the same kind of respect towards you know ceremony and procedure. So yeah, imagine you're broken through the roof of this fancy Catholic cathedral. Um, 
you blow your friend in front of the priest who's you know super religious wearing these ceremonial robes you know they sing their prayers and these weird kind of chanting things there's incense and candles burning and all this weird kind of ceremonial stuff going on and you know that's the atmosphere you've just broken into and the room is dead quiet it wouldn't have physically been the same as that but it's that same kind of level of sort of respect so you've got that awkward silence that you've just disrupted yeah i don't know what's going through your mind you know how are you, how are you going to justify your actions to jesus here you know um sorry sorry to interrupt your sermon i um, heard a rumor you might be able to heal my friend so we couldn't get in and break the roof yeah. i don't know what how you try and explain yourself but thankfully jesus does break that silence um, and he sees you know our desperation not only that but he, he recognizes our faith recognizes that we, we believed it was worth doing something drastic to bring this guy here and it says that when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven and you can imagine that sort of sigh of relief you know that was a big gamble that's just paid off you know and you know um, god still heals today i just feel like it's worth putting a little asterisk in here sometimes you read these stories and a lot of people start teaching a formula of what's required to get get healing from God, um, but I think the truth of it is it's you know it's a mystery of when God does and doesn't heal. Um, some people will will teach that you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith or for this or that reason, and in this scenario it, it took no faith of the paralyzed man. You know he had no say in in getting himself there. And this was all the faith of his friends. Um, and there's other examples where. You know, Jesus does commend the faith of the individual that your faith has healed you. And then there's other examples where no faith or no interaction from someone is required at all. So, so all of that to say, I don't know, it's confusing, but I don't think we can say that there's a secret formula that if we do this, God will heal us. It's, it's all in his hands. So Jesus has said, you know, your sins are forgiven. And that's it's not really the response I would have expected and not what anyone expected in that room. And, and I don't think he's saying, you know, you're forgiven for destroying the roof or for, you know, for what you've done here. It, it says that Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. This is the, the crowd. It says, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And there was, I remember something, I'm pretty sure it was something Chuck Missler said, he's this, you know, famous Bible teacher from the 80s or whatever, and, and he said something along the lines of, whenever we are in danger of missing something really important, um, due to the fact that, you know, we're modern readers and we don't have the culture and, the, and all the history that these people had, whenever we're in danger of missing something important, the Pharisees come to our rescue. And, and we'll, we'll see it a lot during this study that, um, there's so many things that Jesus says or does, and we can kind of just gloss over them and keep moving and not really understand what's going on there. But if we pay attention to when the religious experts get really upset, that's a sign that you know Jesus has just dropped another bombshell on them. So that's what we're seeing here. These, the scribes and the teachers aren't happy, and, and at this point they're quiet about it so far. It's just the thoughts that are going on in their head. You know, Jesus sees it all. He sees all our hidden motives, our sinful thoughts. None of us can escape this. He can see their questioning and their doubtful hearts. 
Um, but actually their response wasn't unreasonable. You know, in normal circumstances, it was blasphemy for someone to claim the authority to forgive sins. That really was for God alone. And Jesus does, doesn't correct them on that. Okay. Um, in that time, Le Levitical priests would pronounce forgiveness quite commonly. You know, most days they would do that based on the instructions in the law of Moses. You know, they'd make atonement for someone and their sins would be forgiven. But the priests, there's a slight difference there that they were not absolving them from sin. You know, that's, that's God's job alone. It was clear that to the teachers here that Jesus is doing something different to what the priests were doing. He's claiming a, you know, a personal and a direct power to forgive people of sins. And, and that was a claim that no Jewish priest would ever make, that he himself had the authority to forgive sins. Now, Jesus wasn't making a sin offering on their behalf like the priests were doing. He's just said, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, that's, that's a big claim. And I, I like what Jesus then goes on to say. He says... When he, when he hears that, when he feels that they're doubting and questioning what's going on, Jesus says, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? And, and I don't know about you guys, but notice, I don't think Jesus actually chose the easier option there. Um, you know, he chose the controversial option. He chose words that would intentionally trigger them. He was counting on drawing attention to those small details that he knew that they would pick up on. He could have said something way more PC and still healed that man. And, and actually, he could have said nothing at all and still healed that man. And he mentions that he didn't actually say that for the sake of the paralyzed guy, but for the audience's sake. And it goes on to say, Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why he said it the way he said it. So, so previously, we heard at the baptism of Jesus. I think Sarah covered that topic, and we, and you know, we hear the voice from heaven saying, you know, this is my son, who I am pleased, and and that's where you know we get that title. You know, Jesus is the Son of God. And for most of you know church history and church teaching, that's that's the title that's focused on. Jesus is the Son of God, and and for good reason. You know, it's true. I'm not <laughs> not talking you out of that. But actually, the, the title that Jesus uses most often for himself isn't that. It's the Son of Man, which is it's quite a, a strange difference. Um, and obviously, the church has always taught that Jesus has got those two natures, the, the divine nature and the human nature, fully God and fully human. And I'm not going to try and explain that and make sense of that, but we'll leave that there. But often when we read these titles, you know, Jesus saying, I am the Son of Man, we kind of just assume you know, Jesus is being humble and just returning and just referring there to his human nature. Um, but actually, that's that's not quite what's going on here. You know, we we think of it as a title of humility, but in fact, it's not. This this title, Son of Man, is as I said, it's his favorite title to describe himself. It's the one he uses most often, and literally means Ben Adam. You know, meaning human or mortal. Um, and it's used in other places to mean literally just that. Um, Ezekiel was a classic example where he's called you know, son of man. And that's in the context of God sort of talking down to him, saying, you know, you're, you're just the son of man. You're a human. What do you know? It's, it's, it's humbling and it is putting in your place. It can be used in that context. 
Um, but here Jesus is applying an Old Testament title. You know, he doesn't say, I am a son of man. He's, he's not saying, I'm just human, I'm mortal. He's, he's used the, I'm not very good with English, is it the definitive article? When it's, it's a specific, I am the son of man, not a son of man. And, and this phrase links back to the book of Daniel uh, in chapter 7. And it, it's, so this isn't a title that Jesus invented. It's coming with a lot of weight and a lot of meaning that's already associated with it. So I'm just going to read Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is Daniel in his vision. He says, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So it's this, this whole chapter 7 in Daniel, I'd encourage you to read it. It, it unpacks a whole lot more about this that, that is really worth looking into. Um, but you know, in hindsight, that passage says so much. Um, in this situation, that the Son of Man isn't isn't a humbling title at all. You know, this describes a, a heavenly person. Um, you know, it says he rides on the clouds with God. You know, who who do we know that rides on the clouds? You know, that's that's a godly thing, at, at least back in that day. You know, they don't have planes; they're not actually up on the clouds. That that's that's attributing it to a, a heavenly being. Um, and and it, you know, describes descending on the earth. You know, in judgment that he's given authority. And he's given that authority by who? The, the Ancient of Days, which was another title of God. And he's not just given authority, but it says he's given glory and power over everyone. And it's saying that all nations and people of every language worshipped him. So that's what Daniel was looking forward to seeing, this, this person who would fill that role. And so now Jesus is saying, you know, I'm that one that Daniel saw. I am the one that was given authority, glory and sovereign power. I am the one that nations and peoples of every language will worship. It's my dominion that is everlasting, and it's my kingdom that will never be destroyed. So, so Jesus is you know, claiming that provocative title and all that stuff that comes with it. In this chapter of Mark, it's written as, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That, that's the words that attributed to Jesus there. And he's always a bit confusing when he talks about himself in the third person. You know, it, it, I feel like it kind of waters it down a little bit. But but they would have understood. You know, the the more direct thing of what he was saying is, I said this guy's sins are forgiven, so that all of you know that I am the Son of Man, and that I am the one given this authority from God to forgive sins. And so, you know, in that context, you can see why these religious leaders are getting a bit upset. You know, that's, this is a big claim. And a claim like that, they'd expect to see some proof. Um, you know, anyone can make that claim. And actually, there were many false messiahs before Jesus you know, that they had reason to be sceptical. This is not something you just take someone's word for it that, hey, I'm, I'm that guy that can forgive sins. It's going to be my kingdom. Do what I say. You know. So these religious leaders are getting upset. And now Jesus says to the, the paralyzed man, he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. 
so this miraculous sign and this healing is it's designed to be packaged with the words that Jesus has said. You know, they couldn't refute this miracle that had just happened. And they were also aware that Jesus has just claimed to be this the son of man, this one that Daniel saw, the one in the vision with all this authority and power given by God. So that, you know, you, you now can't have one without the other is what's going on here. And you'd expect that the right response would be, you know, to think, you know, this is amazing. Now I believe him. This is the one we've been waiting for. Um, and to some extent it was for a few people. Um, it says at the end of that, that passage that, you know, that they praise God and we've never seen anything like this. But obviously, you know, for a lot, particularly for a lot of the religious leaders, they didn't come around for a very long time. I mean, we'll see that unpack a lot more through our story in Mark. And, and I love what I love about the book of Mark is the paraphrasing. Um, you know, I think Sarah mentioned it's likely that Mark wrote down some of the first-hand accounts of Peter. So they're they're often quite short and snappy. These stories, and to the point, they don't contain a lot of detail compared to you know Matthew or Luke. Uh, particularly in these early chapters, it's kind of written like like primary school kids when they write a story about the weekend, and they say you know, and we did this, and then we did this, and then we went here. You know, their their language isn't. It's not a well-written story. It's just a list of and then this and then this and then this, and that's kind of what we see in the book of Mark. Um, you know, he just says, "Take your mat and go," and everyone was amazed. End of story, basically. And I just like how it doesn't mention anything about who fixed the roof or what happened there. Or, you know, like it's what happened. I don't know. Um, I'd I'd like to know what happened and whose house it was, or if it was a church, or yeah, who was left with the job of fixing that. Uh, so there's, there's three questions that we've been focusing on during our study in Mark, and they are, you know, who is Jesus, what did he do, and what is his call to his people? And, and looking at that first question, who is Jesus? Um, in, in this passage, we're focused on that title, you know, the Son of Man, and all that weight that's associated with it. Um, and what I love is sort of how connected this is with the, the big picture of the Bible, and I just want to sort of dig into that a little bit. And I'm hoping you'll be able to follow my train of thought. It probably deserves some slides so that you can follow where I'm going, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Hopefully it will make some sense. So if we remember back at the start of Genesis, I'm going way back now, um, you know, and, and God gives authority to man over the earth, dominion and rule over the earth. And then we had the fall and all that, you know, all that chaos that follows, and we see that the world doesn't operate the way it was intended. And there was this early prophecy about the offspring of Adam and Eve would be the one to crush the serpent's head. I think it was Graham who touched on that. I can't quite remember. Um, you know, there was this glimmer of hope in the story that even though there's all these curses and this sort of enmity between the serpent and the human, one day the offspring of the human will crush the head of the serpent. Um, and you know, in a literal sense, it would be a son of man. It would be a human. And it, I don't have this as tightly in my mind as I'd like to, but it seems to some degree at least, the power and the authority of the world changed. Um, you know, Jesus refers to Satan in some terms that are you know, quite surprisingly authoritative. He, he calls Satan the ruler of this world in John chapter 16. And in Ephesians, um, it describes people who fail to trust in Jesus, it, it describes them as living according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who, who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
And again, in 1 Corinthians, you know, the Bible is referring to Satan as the god of this age. So Satan has clearly been given some measure of authority on this earth, and that's debated and argued as to what extent. That, that's irrelevant for now, but to some extent, some, some authority is given to him. And, and then there's the part in the gospel story that it's not very well covered in the book of Mark, um, and that's the temptation of Jesus. Um, and this was, this did take place previously in chapter one, but it's only mentioned in about two lines in the book of Mark, whereas Matthew and Luke unpack it in more detail. Um, and, what, and what that contains is, um, so this is when the devil took him to a very high place and he showed him all the kingdoms around the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. So for this to actually be tempting for Jesus, there must have been some degree of truth to that. Um, as in, the devil must have had some authority over those kingdoms if he was going to give them to Jesus. You know, It wouldn't be very tempting if he wasn't able to actually give him that. Um, like if I tried to tempt you by saying... Yeah, if you bow down to me, I'll make you the president of the United States. Would you know? Would you be tempted? It, it sounds good on paper, but you, you, I'd hopefully that you've got a you know a bit more going on that you think oh, Michael has no power or authority to make that happen. You know, I I can't make that happen. You know, so it's not going to be tempting for you, is it? You're just going to brush it off and be like, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I reckon Satan must have had some kind of authority over the world in order for him to offer that and for it to be a temptation. So stick with me. Um, authority given to man in Genesis, authority lost to some degree at some point, whatever that looks like. The promise that man's offspring would be given authority one day would crush the head of the serpent. And that definition kind of expanded in Daniel that, you know, it's not just authority, but glory, sovereign power, all nations will worship him. His dominion will be everlasting. His kingdom, the one that is never destroyed. It's giving us more information as we as we continue. And I'd encourage you to read, you know, all of Daniel chapter seven if you want to flesh it out a bit more. It's it's all about this vision of these world powers that will come and go and have dominion for a time. You know, they're described as beasts and they all replace each other, and it's all you know very violent and ugly. But you know, they're given power and rule for a certain time. And then at the end, it has that language that it shows the son of man that is given authority over all, setting up the final kingdom, worship by everyone, you know, all that good stuff, the one that will come after all these other powers that have been in control. So the context of that, you know, the son of man given authority over this world, it comes after listing all these other horrible beasts that will have power for a time. And now we're going to skip all the way forward to Revelation chapter 5. And this is that passage, um, I'll just read it. So this is the vision of John, and he's saying, I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So this is a picture, you know, it's a double-sided scroll that's been sealed. And this, in, in Israel's history, this usually meant it was a property document or an inheritance document. 
and the seal and the instructions on the outside would have been some kind of you know conditions for who is qualified to open it. And if you read all of Revelation five, it it, it seems to imply that it's a you know a property title of for the world essentially. And and the property laws in Israel were a bit strange, um, and Leviticus has more detail on that. But basically, the land was never intended to be sold permanently. Every seventy years, it would return to its original owner, or you know the family who originally was given it. And there were other conditions that if it was sold, it could be redeemed by a, a relative off, or offspring. Um, Leviticus chapter 25 verse 25 says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest kinsman shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it and then return to his property. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's giving a clause that you can sell your land if you need to, if you're on hard times, you can sell it, but you've always got the opportunity to buy back. It's still, it, it's still essentially yours and your family land. And we see examples of this playing out in the book of Ruth with, you know, Naomi talking to Boaz and trying to get her late husband's land back. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a really complicated story, but it's unpacking these land laws. So on the, the outside, um, the, and back to this, the scroll that John's seeing and describing, the, the writing on both sides that's sealed up, he doesn't say what's written on the outside of the scroll, but it would have been something about the conditions of who's allowed to open it. And that's why he's weeping bitterly. He said, no one is able to open the scroll. No one meets these conditions, and that, that's the tragedy of the, of the situation. You know, it, it would say some, the, the old property scrolls would say something like it was sold for this amount to this person by this person on this date. So then you could work out 20 years later, are you the relative of the person who sold it? Yes, okay. It was sold on this date for this much, and it's now you've got a minus 20 years, and that's how you work out what you're paying to get it back. So it's all just practical stuff um, and, and ways of confirming who actually has the authority to buy it back if you're related to the original owners. So that's the picture in Revelation 5. John's weeping because no one meets those conditions. And then as we continue in verse 5, it says, And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seals. Yeah, so, so it's saying, you know, Jesus has paid the price. He's the only one that's been able to pay the price, and he can redeem what this property scroll requires, and in turn get the inheritance of what what's in this document. And, and later in that same chapter five, after the scroll is opened, the, these heavenly creatures start singing. You know, worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every created thing which is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth and the sea and all the things in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be the blessing, the honour, the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So can, can you see those sort of parallels to that book of Daniel, the, the same language being used there? You know, Daniel's saying this one day the son of man will come and he's going to overthrow those that are in, in power and he will receive the power, glory, dominion everyone will worship him that's what Daniel's saying and now in Revelation it's saying you know Jesus is the one who can do that he's the one who has received all this 
Yeah, so so again, this is a this is a massive claim when Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man with the authority to forgive sins, and he's confirmed that authority by the miracles that he's done. You know, he's not being humble here, saying I'm I'm just a human. You know, this is this is big stuff for the for these teachers of the law. So so who is Jesus? He is the Son of Man, the one prophesied in Daniel. And even since right at the beginning, he's the one that will crush the head of the serpent. He's the, the one who's coming to establish his kingdom rule forever. So it's a pretty confronting title for these guys at this point. That's who he is. And our second question of what did he do? I mean, in this passage, you know, by simply telling them who he is, he's basically just, you know, shocked everyone and shattered their reality with that statement. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a slight twist there that you know he's claiming to be this one that's given the authority and power by God, but interestingly, he doesn't use that power as you might expect a ruler to. Specifically, you know, in the book of Daniel, it's all these ugly beasts, and it, you know, it's not described in a great way. You'd expect the one, you know, they get worse after each other. You're expecting this final ruler to be super powerful and ruthless that no one dares question them, you know. Um, but here he, he arrives and he's choosing to forgive the sins of this man and heal him. And we'll see this unpacked a bit more throughout the book of Mark. You know, He doesn't behave how we expect a ruler would. Not coming in judgment, but he comes offering forgiveness to those who repent. And, and he does warn of the judgment that is to come later, but for now he's, you know, he's preaching repentance and forgiveness. Um, and yeah, as we go through this series, just keep an eye out for the different ways he treats and talks to people. It's, it's quite interesting that he, you know, he's got a lot of compassion to sinners and people who are lost and the, the sick. You know, people who will listen and repent and who are having a hard time, he's got a, a lot of compassion for. But you almost see a completely different side of Jesus, like when he's talking to you know the rig- religious elite or the you know the leaders and those in powers, those who are stubborn and hypocritical it's just really interesting to to see the language he uses and he'll he'll be gentle with others and provocative with with others it's yeah keep an eye out for that we'll see a lot more of it and the third question you know what did he do i oh, know sorry that's still the second one he's he's told them that he's going to be bringing in a new kingdom and he forgives and he heals and he calls people to follow him so the third question being what is his call to his people and in this story, it's it's not specifically mentioned, but I think there's a lesson here, you know, showing something that that Jesus approves of or you know thinks well of. The the four people that carried this guy in showed a few traits. You know, they they had a strong faith. It, for them, it was worth the effort to bring this guy all the way here. They expected something good to come from it. Um, they had compassion. They they practically did somewhat something for someone who was experiencing hardship. They could have left this guy at home and got front row seats and heard what was happening. And they they chose not to. They had compassion. They also had like you know this crazy boldness and perseverance and creativity. They they didn't give up easily or get discouraged at things that they did have the power to change. Um, you know, and we we don't always have the ability to overcome obstacles or change things. But I suspect we we probably do more often than we give ourselves credit for or at, at least that that's my opinion of myself that you know, I give up too easily or put things into the too hard basket they probably aren't all that difficult 
you know, you actually can dig through a roof and lower someone through it. And I'm not necessarily saying you should, you know, destroy property to take someone to church, but I'm saying, you know, I'm saying don't, don't be discouraged. Don't let a small physical hurdle stop you. You know, um, if, you know, if an unbeliever can't drive, pick them up and take them to church. That's not really a big deal, is it? If they can't hear, you know, bring them a book and study together. If they don't speak English, connect them to resources in their own language. Um, you know, I'm amazed at people who specifically learn to read or speak another language just to share the gospel with people, you know, or people who translate the Bible into a whole other language that doesn't currently have a Bible. You know, I think that's that's a practical obstacle, which in my mind is, there's no way I can do that. That's, you know, that's monstrous. But actually, if I dedicated some time and it, you know, it's not actually impossible. It's a practical hurdle that can be solved by some people. And that's, that's awesome. You know, purchase a Bible for someone who won't prioritize it. That's such a small thing. Look after the kids of someone so that they can participate in church. You know, so many small practical things we can do. And I just think, you know, how easily this story could have ended differently. You know, we carry that guy and we arrive and the crowd's too big. We're stuck in the back. We can't hear anything. If it was me on all four corners or, you know, people like me that get discouraged, we'd put them down outside too far away to hear anything that's going on. You know, this guy misses his encounter with Jesus. We turn around and carry him home at the end. End of story. You know, like that's, that could have very easily and realistically been quite a tragic story. Um, yeah, and I still think destroying a roof is, is pretty dramatic, but the, the, that risky act led to that man's salvation and it's great that he was healed, but knowing that his sins are forgiven is, you know, that's worth persevering, persevering through a few practical obstacles. If you have to be, spend a bit of money or a couple of hours fixing a roof, that's not really a big cost for someone's salvation, is it? So, yeah, I guess that's a challenge to all of us. If you hear of someone who can't make it to church or, you know, unable to connect with God for practical reasons then you know examine those reasons and you know get bold and get creative is it really a big enough problem that can't be solved and you know we're not all powerful some problems we can't solve some are actually in the too hard basket but probably not all of them um, and yeah reach out to the eldership team if there's any practical way we can we can assist with that i'm sure yeah we're all for that